Good morning. Welcome to Northfield Christian. We're glad you chose to worship with us today. If you have any room in your row, could you please move in just a little bit? We've got a sellout crowd this morning, uh, which is a great problem to have. It's actually not a problem at all. Uh, welcome again to Northfield Christian. And if I forget before I say it, Merry Christmas to everyone, however you're celebrating uh, today with family or friends, the birth of Jesus. So today, logically enough, we are concluding our Advent series. And uh, I will do a little bit of a recap later, but I have been tasked with unexpected Jesus. And it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm a sports guy, those of you that don't know me, and I thought, well, what, what is the most unexpected sports victory in my lifetime? Let's watch that. Great moments are born in great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. Not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Okay, I apologize, I meant to have that word deleted out, don't let that distract and ruin your sermon. Anyone that doesn't know, that was the 1980 Miracle on Ice, right? Um, Herb Brooks said in that, that um, if they play that game nine times out of ten, the Soviets would win nine. Anybody that knows anything about hockey, I would suggest to you if they played that game a thousand times, the United States would win once. That was a crew of ragtag college hockey players beating the professional Olympic team. It is the greatest victory, the greatest unexpected victory, at least for me, in sports. So today, unexpected Jesus. Before we go to that, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Wonderful. 
merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? So we offer up prayer because we get to gather together to learn about an unexpected Savior, an unexpected victory through a child born in lowly estate who bids us simply to come with childlike faith in humble estate ourselves. We pray we lower our hearts. We center our thoughts on this unexpected victory found in a baby. We pray for your word and we pray for Rick as he brings it before us. In Christ's name. Thank you. So, if those of you that are note takers, uh, I've tried to marry the, uh, the PowerPoint here with it. So, unexpected birth. Jesus' birth on an, in and of itself was not unexpected. 55 Old Testament prophecies prophesied Jesus' birth. 55. Uh, Genesis 3 was the first one. Actually, Cole referenced that in what I'm going to call our pre-Advent sermon. And that is that, G, that Mary, Mary, uh, Eve will bear a child. In, and there will be pain. Some of the more famous Old Testament prophecies are Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, made famous by Handel's Messiah, right? You will have a child born, wonderful counselor. And Micah 5, 2 tells us specifically that it will be Bethlehem. Now, we don't know when it will be. So here are some of the unexpected things. Unexpected. You know, we know the Christmas story, right? There's some beauty in that, but there's some bad in that. And Jesus was laid in a manger, and it's talked about but do you ever truly consider that the king of the world, the savior God, was put in a food trough? That's where Jesus was laid, in a food trough, unexpected. Who are the first people made aware of Jesus' birth? Shepherds. How were shepherds viewed in society? Way down here. Shepherds were viewed very poorly in the Jewish society. Shepherds, by nature of their vocation, could not adhere to the ceremonial laws of washing. So they were viewed as lawbreakers, and they were not viewed kindly. Just in Jerusalem? No. In Genesis 46, 34, when Joseph's, brother gain, when Joseph's brothers gain an audience with Pharaoh, Joseph counsels his brothers, you tell Pharaoh you are anything but a shepherd. Because shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. Expected. The first people to hear of Jesus' birth? Shepherds. Unexpected. Fast forwarding ahead a little bit to Jesus. Luke 2 has always been quizzical to me. It's, a, it's great in a quizzical positive way. Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. Jesus is 12. Old enough maybe to get along a little bit. But they lost him for three days. Three days. Now, this is somewhat prior, a few years prior to this device. They weren't able to ping him and know where he was. A little prior to 911, a little prior to Snapchat or missing people alerts. Three days. Could you imagine the panic in them? Where is Jesus found? At the temple. And what's his response when they find him? Where'd you think I would be? Where did you think I would be? I had to be about my father's business. If Mary and Joseph expected to find Jesus at the temple, they would have went there first and not 
three days later. Unexpected. Jesus' ministry, lots of unexpected things. Jesus comes from Nazareth. John 1.46, can anything good come from Nazareth? Not where you'd expect the Savior of the world to come. Jesus, in John 8.48, is referred to as a Samaritan. Is Jesus a Samaritan? He is most certainly not. He is a Jew. Why is he referred to as a Samaritan in John 8.48? Because that is a term of contempt or derision. A Jew who did not follow the law was a renegade or a lawbreaker, and they were chided and being called as a Samaritan. Unexpected. Jesus has 12 disciples, right? Is this the crew you would assemble to change the world? Some fishermen? A thief? Okay, a doctor. We've got someone we can hang our hat on here. A tax collector? And a political lobbyist are among Jesus' disciples. Is that who you'd expect that you'd make your 12 guys that are going to change the world? Who would a religious leader interact with? Jesus is the son of God. Who would he interact with? The church, no. The scribes and the Pharisees would be his main point of interaction. Well, he interacted quite a bit with them. It never went well. Matthew 23, seven times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Jesus interacted with them in their temple twice, clearing the temple out, once with a whip. That was Jesus' unexpected interaction with the religious elite. Jesus did interact miraculously with Nicodemus. We know that story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he is confused. How can someone be born again? He was thinking about it in the physical sense. How can this happen? And at the end of that evening that Nicodemus spent with Jesus, Nicodemus was converted and had a saving faith. And that's where our story with Nicodemus generally stops. When Jesus died, who retrieved his body? First name that comes to mind, Joseph of Arimathea, correct? Who helped him? Nicodemus. Nicodemus saw to it that Jesus would get a proper burial on earth, a Pharisee. And Luke 7.33, almost verbatim in Matthew 19, I'm going to go back to the King James because sometimes I just like it. Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard or a wine-bibber in the King James. Now, I am not suggesting by any stretch that Jesus was those things, but Jesus hung out with unexpected people, and he was called unexpected names. Did you think the Savior of the world would be called a glutton or a wine-bibber? Interactions. Turn with me in your Bible, please. I want to look at two interactions Jesus had, and that is Luke 19. It's page 878 in your pew Bible. I'll give you a moment to get there. Picking up in verse 1, Luke 19, 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Zacchaeus, by profession, is a tax collector. That's not entirely true. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. How are the tax collectors viewed? We had the shepherds here. We have the tax collectors below them. Why is that? The tax system was fairly simple. The Romans were the occupiers, and the tax collectors were predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish. And Rome said very simply, we need $10,000 from Tremont. We'll pick this community. And as long as the tax collector, in this case Zacchaeus, got 10 grand and gave it to Rome, Rome was happy. And any money Zacchaeus got above the 10 grand, right in his pocket. So the Jews didn't like the tax collectors because they worked for the Romans, and they also took money off the top. It says here Zacchaeus was not just wealthy, very wealthy. Apparently he was a very good tax collector. Did you think Jesus' interactions would be with a tax collector? Unexpected, that theme again. Um, I wrote here because I just wanted to take it head on. Did, Jesus, did Zacchaeus buy his salvation? There's some verses missing here probably. Zacchaeus did not buy his salvation. What we see here is Zacchaeus is converted by the Holy Spirit, like we all are. There is no other way other than the work of the Holy Spirit to be converted. Zacchaeus did not buy. What we see here is the fruit of the repentance. Immediately, Zacchaeus realizes he had done wrong in the past. And he is going to right the wrongs that he has done. This is repentance. This is him turning his back on the ways that he was doing. And if you look at the results, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And verse 10, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because who was Jesus coming? For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. That's why Jesus came. Interaction number two. Flip ahead ten pages in your pew Bible. John 4, page 888. John 4, I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. We will read a little bit here. John 4, 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. We have another unexpected interaction here. We read in the text that the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. That is true. So that's unexpected thing number one. But I propose that when the disciples got back, they were even more shocked that Jesus was talking to a woman. In society in those days, well, a current day, society, Christians sometimes are accused of being chauvinistic, and we enforce kind of the rules of headship. In those days, the men did not talk to the women. So Jesus here is not only just talking to a Samaritan, he is talking to a Samaritan woman, unexpected. And note, Jesus has nothing to drink with or draw water with. She points this out. He was asking her not just to draw water, he was going to drink out of her cup, another social faux pas. And did you catch the last verse I read? Verse 26. Did you expect that the first people, person on earth that Jesus would proclaim publicly his deity to would be a Samaritan woman? Jesus said, he who speaks to you is the Messiah. I am he. The first person Jesus publicly acknowledges his deity to, a Samaritan woman. Look at the results. Scroll down to page, uh, page, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The first large-scale conversion in Jerusalem at the temple, in Jericho, where's the first large-scale conversion? Samaritans. 
Did you expect this is how Jesus' ministry would roll? I want to talk, this is your next thing in your note, and I want to share two stories. And I want to talk about unexpected today. And I'll probably contradict myself saying not unexpected. Story quickly here about Stephen and Myra. Stephen and Myra were newlyweds, and they were told they will never have a child. Myra had health issues, endometriosis, among other issues, that it was physically impossible for her to conceive a child. Myra missed a cycle, and curiosity got the better of her, and she decided to take a pregnancy test. I'm not up on that. It's been a few years since we did one at home, but aren't those north of 99%, something like that, accurate with pregnancy tests? She called her doctor, said, I'm pregnant. The doctor's office called back and said, that's not possible. It, it, it can't happen. If you did test positive, sometimes what happens is that egg lands where it shouldn't, and your body temporarily thinks it's pregnant, but there's not food and nutrients there, and that the egg can't grow. The doctor said, that's what happened to you. If you wouldn't have taken the test, you'd never know. Don't worry about it. it nothing. can't happen. Myra persisted. She went to the doctor. He actually ran some tests, and the egg was exactly where it needed to be. And the doctor said, no way. He's denying the test he ran. He says, this will not happen. It cannot happen. There they are. The doctor, not a believer. 41 years practicing medicine. Performs the C-section. Hands Tendi, the name of the boy, to her and says, your boy is a miracle. There is no scientific or medical way that this happened. Un expected. Miracles still happen today, folks. On the other end of the spectrum, however, I came across this. This was in a prayer chain. I can't remember if it was this week or last. Well, this week's the first day of the week. Last week. Thank you all for praying for our friend Fabian and Tina. Thiessen, um, Fabian passed away last week, and my heart sank when I read this in my office. Because I prayed, there was a prayer chain preceding this to pray for him. He was fighting cancer. And I prayed in my office, God, I prayed for a miracle. And it didn't happen. And unfortunately, in a broken world, while God is capable, I can't explain it. But miracles happen, and sometimes they don't. But after my depression of reading that, read the second part of that same prayer chain. The red at the bottom. We are not promised. We don't preach the prosperity gospel up here because it's not in the Bible. We are not promised that our troubles will go away. But Jesus has met her. And Jesus will continue to meet her. Life will not be easy. She still has a lot of hurdles ahead and tremendous issues. We need to continue to pray for her. I know uh, the Yandels know her and need to seek out how we can bless her. But Jesus is meeting her. And I don't know why this struck me as unexpected. Because shouldn't this be where we expect Jesus to meet us? Can you think back in your life? Have you gone through a hardship? Have you gone through something tough? I'm not minimizing anything you're going through. And I wish it could all go away in a miracle. But look for Jesus in those things. Find him and seek him. Unexpected today. Where am I looking for Jesus? The world looks for Jesus underneath a Christmas tree. We look for happiness in alcohol and drugs and whatever. Um, you know, it's Christmas time, right? What cracks me up is those commercials of people giving away Lexuses. Is anyone here in a financial position where you're giving away a Lexus? 
Because if you are see me after the service, I want to give you my address. <laughs> the world's looking for happiness. The world's looking for Jesus under the tree. Where are we looking for him? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Am I looking, am I finding Jesus in the hard times? I read an article on a guy that spent on the persecuted church. And he had interviewed many, many people that had been persecuted for their faith. And each of them said, when you pray for the persecuted church... Do not pray for the persecution to end. You pray that we stand underneath it. Folks, are we seeing Jesus in the hard times? Are we looking for him there? Because that's where we should expect him. Fourth note in your bulletin is victory. This is the unexpected path of victory. I know this isn't your prototypical Christmas sermon, and I, really in the Advent series, none of them have been. But I want to follow the Christmas story because the Christmas story doesn't end in Bethlehem. And the Christmas story takes an unexpected path via the cross. This is our hero. This is victory. Flogged and deserted. One of the words in our Christmas thing was courageous. Was Jesus courageous? I would suggest yes. He was courageous enough to pay this price. And Mark 10.45 says that he was a ransom for many. Courageous, absolutely. One of the words in our Advent series was humble. Humble even to death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. Was Jesus approachable was one of our words. Ask the thief on the cross if the king of kings was approachable till his dying breath. This day you will be with me in paradise. This is Jesus crushing Satan's head, Cole's sermon. And folks, this fulfills Isaiah 3, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. The unexpected path of victory. But folks, it doesn't end on the cross. He is risen. Luke 2.45, the ladies go to the tomb in the morning and the angel says, What? Why are you seeking the living Christ is alive among the dead. The Easter story doesn't end on the, the Christmas story doesn't end on the cross. Acts 2.24, death could not hold him. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to Hades and death. Revelation 1. He is alive, folks. This is the victory. This is Jesus crushing Satan's head.
And folks, he will return in glory. Your last thing on notes. And I'll go through these quickly. He will come in glory. And his second coming will look absolutely nothing like his first. His second coming, his robe will fill the temple. His hair will be white as snow. His eyes blazing like fire. Feet glowing bronze. A voice like rushing waters. A mouth sharp as a double-edged sword. And face as the sun. If that's not enough, he will come back and he will judge the nations. He will be seated on the throne. His throne will be flaming with fire. He observes men and examines them, and nothing, nothing is hidden from him. He is perfectly righteous. He will come back with his reward, and we must give account. And if this is not your happy-go-lucky joy-to-the-world story, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. And folks, he's coming back, and you will give an account. And I want to be perfectly clear on this Christmas Eve day. If you are outside of a saving faith with Jesus Christ, if you do not know him and have not applied his blood on your stead, this will be horrible. This will be beyond horrible. Because I want no ambiguity here. Hell is real. And hell is forever. And you will give an account, and the account is simply, do you know Jesus Christ, my son? Have you accepted his blood? It's not my good works exceed my bad, and God's going to look at it on some kind of scale and say, well, you're better than the people we got locked up in jail. That's not how it works, folks. When that Christ comes and you're not with him, he will not be approachable, and he will not be humble, and there are no miracles left at that point. But folks, that's the bad news, but the good news is there's hope. There's hope because there's hope today. Today is God's day, Charles Ryle says, and tomorrow is the devil, the devil's. Folks, there is hope today. You can write that today, there's hope. And if you are a Christian and you do have that relationship with Jesus Christ, can you think about that? Can you wake up every day with joy? Can you put it in these terms? It's only when we realize that how lost we were that we can understand how great the price was for our salvation. It wasn't what I did. It's only when I realize how hopelessly lost, we sang that earlier, we were, that we can understand the price that it cost Christ for us. Can we give our lives and live in humble adoration, glorifying the Lamb that paid that price for us. We're going to close with a song, Unexpected Jesus, or Expected Jesus. Are you looking for him? Worship team should come up. Um, are you ready for his return? There's only, two, there's only two outcomes. Are you ready for his return? If you're not, today is the day. And if you are, Are you living in that joy? Are you living in that realization every day of how hopelessly lost you were, but so thankful for the work that he did on the cross to redeem you? Are you living in that light?